How does one go from being an internationally renowned fitness expert to nearly debilitating panic attacks of self-doubt to certified positive mindset coach? It's the amazing journey of my guest today. Hello everyone and welcome to Live Your Best Life with Liz Bruner. I'm Liz and I'm thrilled to have joining me today Petra Kolber. Petra, welcome to my podcast. It's such a thrill to be here. Thank you for having me, Liz. Soul speaker, movement motivator, and energetic educator. Those are just a few of the descriptions that characterize the work that you do now. Share with our listeners what all of that exactly means. You know, I think it's whether you move your life and your body through listening to podcasts like this, through reading books, through going for walks in nature. For me, the three things that we invite people to consider to move, to step into their best life is their thoughts, obviously, their breath, which anchors them to the present moment, and then their body. And so if we can do that with our lightness and information, but yet it feels inspirational and meet people where they are, that's how I think we can all rise up together and move into our best possible future. Well, before all of this work that you're doing now, you were all about fitness. You left Northern England at the age of 16 and a half. You traveled the world with such companies as Reebok, Adidas, and Gatorade. You choreographed 60 award-winning videos and fitness programs. You were on TV. You were even on a special case cereal box. <laughs> what a high all of that must have been at that time, yes? It was. I think when I first started out, Liz, it was, I had nothing to prove in a way. I'm this girl from Liverpool. The hardest thing I had to overcome was my accent because no one could understand me. But then outside of that, I was the new kid on the block. They called me Petra Cobbler. No one knew who I was. There was nothing to lose. And then what happened, I got very blessed. It was really luck meeting right time and opportunity. And maybe my accent has something to do with it. And then I partnered up with Reebok. And then I could mention very kindly, you didn't say they were VHS tapes, but that's how long I've been in fitness. And then I was, like you mentioned, I was noted in the New York Times as one of the most likely to succeed. I was on the back of a special K box. And all of a sudden, Liz, I had this idea that to be worthy of this success, I needed to be different. I needed to know everything. I needed to look perfect. I needed to eat perfectly. And so then that enjoyment of just working out for fun and bringing people along the journey, it began unwillingly internally to, I felt like there was something I had to measure up to. No one, by the way, Liz, had ever said that to me. Reebok, everyone I was working with were more than happy with what I was doing, but somewhere a tape from my youth where I remember some of my coaches have said, you're never going to make it. You're not smart enough. They began to you know, rear their voices. And so that amazing time, which it was amazing, was tainted a little bit because I felt like I had something to prove, that I needed to be different than what I was to connect to people. I'm not saying I didn't. I had an amazing time. I, I got paid to go all around the world, but I always felt like I was two steps ahead of being in the moment. Oh waiting for that person to ask me the question I didn't know, waiting to make a mistake. And that's the thing I want to help people with as I move forward, to give people the cliff notes that wherever you are in this journey called life, people are not looking for perfect, they're looking for you. And how do we connect through our cracks and bring people along for the journey? And, and it's so interesting that you talk about that because certainly from the outside looking in, everybody would think you just had this most amazing life, but 
it really led, because of that self-doubt and those questions, to panic attacks. You realized you weren't happy. In fact, you, you write that you were downright terrified. And I do believe that there are a lot of people who suffer from those insecurities or called outsider syndrome. You talked a little bit about where some of those fears came from. Take me back to your childhood. Did some of that stem from there as well? Because it often does for a lot of people. So I think there's, there's two parts to it. There was a self-script that I wrote to myself saying to be worthy because I felt like that imposter, right? Like, who am I really to be deserving of this success? So I had that going on. You know, I'm a girl from Liverpool or close to Liverpool. I never forget, Liz, the first time I met Americans. I call it the tall poppy syndrome, like, like Brits, UK, people from New Zealand, Australia. We tend to suffer from this idea like, don't stand out too much. Because what does that mean to somebody else? Don't get too big for your britches. Who do you think you are? So I think I wasn't taught to dream big. It's almost frowned upon. And I do remember the first time I met Americans, I was dancing and it was right around the era of Jane Fonda. And I was like, who are these magical people? I don't know who they are. They're like, they have got big dreams and they're not afraid of saying what they want to do with their life. And I was like, you don't talk about that in the UK. So I think it was a little bit of my upbringing. Then also, Liz, I remember as a dancer, I had teachers that it was of that school that they broke you down. They just forgot to build you back up again. So I was never smart enough. I was never good enough. You're not going to make it. So that combined with the British don't dream too big because what does that say about you? And then this idea of how does anyone ever teach you to get ready for success? So I had this amazing life gifted to me and through hard work that I don't think I was ready for. It was that whole sense of, this is so amazing, but I'm going to get found out because who am I to be deserving of a life like that? So it was like a whole melting pot of ingredients, put them all together. And that was just a perfect recipe for anxiety that then built into panic attacks. One of my favorite quotes of yours is that the most important story one ever tells is the story you tell yourself. And I believe it's so important to understand how much power is in our thoughts and learning how to silence that inner critic. For all of us, we all have self-doubt. We all have insecurities. How do we do that? I don't even know if we can silence it because I often say, you know, what you don't own will own you. So if, we, you, know, if you try and like condense anything, fear, anxiety, worry, it actually gives it more power. What I found worked for me, Liz, is I can't remember strongly if they disappeared, but the moment I realized they didn't have power over me any longer was when I was in front of a dermatologist. Oh, I could feel the heart rate going. I knew I was going to start sweating. And that was the worst thing for me, Liz. I never had a panic attack when I was teaching or presenting because I was sweating, you know, so I never worried about that. But one of my symptoms which I could not hide was if I was to have a panic attack now on this call with you, you would be able to notice that they're glistening on my lip. And then I'd be freaking out going, oh, Liz is noticing my lips getting a little sweaty. How do I get rid of that? And then it would just literally in 60 seconds, it would look like I had run a marathon. That's not an exaggeration. And so I always had this worry of this very external sign to everybody that, oh, here she is even more imperfect than she was already. And I was in front of this doctor because I saw her out of context. 
And instead of trying to push it away, I said, I think Diana, I'm about to have a panic attack. If you just, you know, if we just keep talking, I'll be able to get to the side of it. And the moment I gave it room to show up, it disappeared. And I think for a lot of people listening, it's not that it goes away. It's what do we decide to do with the information? Mm, so powerful. All of that clearly led to you writing your best-selling book, The Perfection Detox, Tame Your Inner Critic, Live Bravely and Unleash Your Joy. You say that you spent seven years detoxing from perfectionism, and now you call yourself a recovering perfectionist. What are some of the steps we can take to detox ourselves besides the one that you just shared? Well, I think what you said before, Liz, is so powerful. It's the thoughts. There's that saying, thoughts become things and, you know, visualize your way to success. And we kind of like discount it, but our thoughts are so powerful because I love that quote. It's not mine. It's been accredited to several people. Watch your thoughts because they become your words. Watch your words because they become your habits and so on. Everything begins with a thought. And oftentimes the negative ones have become such a part of who we are. We don't even notice them anymore. We wake up with them. They kind of come along for us you know, for the ride during the day. We go to sleep with them. So the first step is just noticing that the thoughts that you're having about yourself, about how you're showing up in life. And I think the tricky thing right now in the world that we're living in right now is there is very true fear and uncertainty and anxiety. It's peeling that away from then the internal self-doubts and worries that I call them, so there's the real fear, real anxiety, real unknowing. And then there's the false fears, the false anxiety, the false unknowing, where we feel like we have to know everything before we take the leap. We feel like we have to have everything dialed in perfectly, say the perfect thing, write the perfect book, do the perfect podcast, you name it, whatever's important to you. Perfect PTA meeting. <laughs> oh, it's exhausting. It is exhausting just hearing exhausting. you say it. <laughs> I know. And because we've become so used to that, we don't even think there's anything wrong with it. As a two-time cancer survivor, fitness clearly still very much a part of your life, but now you focus into tapping into people's hearts, not just their bodies, and you touched on that a moment ago. With all your public speaking, your book, and your own podcast, which I love the title, which is Live Your Yes Life Now podcast, describe your show. Who do you have on your show? What do you talk about? It's conversations that help people remember everything that they are versus thinking that they have to change who they are and recognizing they're not alone in the struggle. It's like the Wizard of Oz. You know, you, my dear, had the power all along. And it's just giving people everyday reminders through conversations, through observation, that we're all in this together, that the struggle is real and that you have every right to ride the ups and downs of life, but flourish and thrive on your terms. And I think the big one message I would love people to know, and like you do on your show, it's not about changing who you are. It's actually about becoming more of who you are. And when we can understand that the full package does not mean the perfect package, it means the hits and the misses, the wins and the losses, the successes and what we might perceive as failures, that that is a journey well taken. And that's a story worth reading. Like you said, it's the hard work, right? I call it the hard work versus the hard work <laughs> because it's the longest distance we will ever travel is from our head that wants to tell us that we need to be different to our heart, which knows the truth, 
that you're already perfect. And when we can align our head story with our heart story, that's when we get to show up and live the life that the world is expecting of us and wanting for us. I like to use the words when I'm sharing with clients stories and things like that. I want everyone to own who they are. And I mm -hmm. think we're talking the same thing here, which I, I love. You have written that your personal soul goal is to spend a year traveling the world and writing your second book, which I have no doubt that you're going to do. <laughs> you also have a bit of a secret talent. At the age of 55, you became a disc jockey, and now you're a resident DJ for a boutique hotel in New York City. You must spill the beans. How did that come about? <laughs> it was the day of my book launch. I had just finished the book, right? So I just released it two years ago. And of course, no one can give you time just to say congratulations on the book. As I was being interviewed at my book party, they said, so what's next? I call this throwing your backpack over the wall and actually throwing your backpack over the wall with your cell phone in it. Because you might leave the backpack, but you're not going to leave your cell phone. You know, I've always wanted to be a DJ. That was literally casual. And I had two people in my life who are dear friends of mine. One was a woman who ran one of the largest fitness conventions in Canada. And then another friend of mine who's in the music business. And right after that, they came up to me and my friend Maureen Hagen said, how serious are you about this DJing thing? I'm like, I'm serious. I mean, I really hadn't given it two minds. And she goes, okay, this time next year, I want you to DJ our VIP party. So I'm thinking, oh, it's a year away. Okay, fine. And then Mike Babbitt and Mike Pipitone, two of my friends in the music industry said, how serious are you? I'm like, I'm serious. Next day, Liz, they had shipped to my apartment this incredible thing called a tractor, which is one of the DJ controllers. And so I still thought, oh, it's a year away. And then it was six months away. And then it was four. And so I got ready. You don't do your first speaking experience on a keynote stage, right? For 2000 people, you practice it in your living room. My first live <laughs> DJ experience was for 600 people oh at a VIP party. <laughs> but that's how I got ready. And, you know, and I, I always say this, and I'm sure you've say, you say it in a different way, we have to hold ourselves accountable to our dreams. And so that I put it out. I declared it before I said yes. And then I got ready for my yes. And I know had that conversation not happened, I would never have DJed because I would have given up on my dream way before my dream ever gave up on me. But because it was on paper, it was published to people I knew <laughs> there was no way I wasn't going to show up for it. In February 2020, you attended one of Oprah's vision tour spots. That must have been amazing. Tell me about that experience. Well, it was that, and you shared different guests at each venue. And her guest for Brooklyn was Michelle Obama. I got the double prize. It was just amazing. It, we know what it was, Liz. It was to see women and a couple of guys from all over the New York area come together for one goal to find their best selves and it didn't stop there. It was to be your best self so you could help others be their best selves. Look, who doesn't love Oprah and Michelle Obama? So it was just to be in that energy and really see how they held a space for, gosh, 18,000 plus women. And each one of us felt seen and heard in that venue. And that's one of the things I took away. It's like, how can I do that in my life, in my work, not in that grand scheme, but really just remembering how all of us, we just want the tips and the tools and the strategies and the permission to show up and live our best life. Mm. And that leads me into a little bit of the blog that you wrote about your experience there. 
And I believe it's probably Oprah who shared 14 questions that need to be asked of ourselves every day. And one of those questions is this, what thoughts empower you to live into your best life? What would be your answer to that question? Oh, that's good. You've done your homework. You know, I think one that helps me a lot, Liz, is remembering that it's not about me. My main driver, I think, as I get older, is I want to live well. I think my life on this planet is a teacher. It always has been. It's where I love to be, like teaching people how to own their story and share their story and live their story. I used to be so afraid of failure. And now I'm only afraid of living and leaving this life with regret. Every day, I guess my question to myself would be, is this thought moving you to a life that you're going to be proud to leave? Or is it going to be a thought that's going to make you go, what if I had only tried that? And that to me is failure. And then when my, you know, my negative tape gets too big, I remember it's not about me. It's all about the men and women I want to shine the light on. So when I take it off myself and I bring it onto the people I want to help, that helps me tame my inner critic when she gets out of hand. And let me put a little different twist on that, which is you're so upbeat and positive and full of this energy and presence. You are also a human being and we all have days when we're ups and downs and things aren't going as well. And, and we, I don't want to say have a failure, but the, the happiness barometer has taken a dip for whatever reason. How do you get yourself back up to that high point? I think for me, Liz, it's so interesting because my history was movement. So when I was teaching fitness, it wasn't even anything I had to think about. You know, I was paid to go and work out. And you know, that's changed as a writer and even as a DJ and as a podcast host. A lot of my time is spent in my brain and creating. And for me, the fastest way, and it just happened to me like a couple of days ago, I was like, why am I feeling so out of sorts? And yes, it's what's happening in the world, but it was more than that. And so the fastest way for it is to get up and get moving. When I'm not moving my body, my brain goes on to overdrive. I'm very lucky. I live near Central Park. So it's as simple as just getting up and taking a walk in nature. And then everything seems more doable. So for me, that really is the biggest thing. When I'm not moving my body, it's the worst place for my happiness and my health. And when I go and do keynotes, I often say, you know, my job in the fitness industry was to move you. And we're all sitting. I call it, we're professional sitters. And so I say, it's my job to scare the sit out of you because we sit so much. And again, for our future and our dreams and our hearts and our vision, worst place. So for me, it's moving my body. And that helps me move my thoughts back into a more positive space. I agree a hundred percent. I love getting out and moving because even though I may not feel like it in the moment, I always feel better after I've done it. If you'd like to learn more about Petra, I encourage all of you to head over to her website, petracolber.com. And that's P-E-T-R-A-K-O-L-B-E-R.com, petracolber.com. And while you're there, download her free Confidence Catalyst Workbook. Petra, as a self-described happiness facilitator, I can't thank you enough for sharing your joy and happiness with all of us today. It's been delightful. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate the time. Both Petra and I want each of you to live your best life. And thank you so much for tuning in. I invite you to become a subscriber and let us know what is inspiring you to live your best life. Until next time, be well.
This podcast is brought to you in part by Fast Twitch Media, helping people tell their stories and giving them worldwide reach. The future is in the cloud and Fast Twitch Media can take you there. Be your best digital self. Check out fasttwitchmedia.space.